Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled, The Spirit of Things 2. Here we go again. Our author, Carol Mann, joins me from Massachusetts. Welcome, Carol, to the program. Oh, thank you very much. I feel very honored to be here. Well, this is, a, this is a, a book that deals with a subject matter and a lot of people are not familiar with, but some are curious about. What is the, the content of The Spirit of Things 2, your second book? My second book, I have, been, I have been intuitive since a child, and I'm able to see spirits. Some people call them ghosts. I, I call them spirits. But I take pictures, and I tell their stories. And in the book itself is a story um, about each spirit and their appearance, and, and, the story, and, there, and there is, is a picture, one or two pictures after each story. So that is the basic of the book. Um, this is my second book. The first one is uh, the Spirit of Things. Yeah. But when you, I'm sorry, here, Carol. When you say you take pictures, are you taking pictures of just events, or are you taking pictures of uh, no? Of, I'm of t- no. I go out in the woods. Oh. We have a 27-acre horse farm out here in Westport. Okay. And it's very special to land. And um, I go out in the woods, and there's, there's pictures of orbs. I have fairies. There's and hmm. and many other mediums have come to visit and. So I, on the front cover of the book, is there's a little spirit walking by in between one of the trees. Oh, yes. But, uh, and I just use a disposable camera. I'm not a technological person. I don't use a cell phone. I don't use a digital camera. I just use a disposable camera. But um, each story is concerning a spirit, and then there's a picture of the spirit at the end to, for confirmation. You have mentioned the the word intuitive, which some people are familiar with, what, and and you've said you are or have been a, an intuitive since a child. What yes, is the yes. first imp- uh, first impression you have? Uh, some people call themselves psychics or mediums. I don't consider myself a medium. I don't channel. Um, I'm, I'm an I'm an intuitive. I, I have the gift of prophecy, and I see spirits. So I am intuitive. We we are all intuitive. Right. It's just that it can be honed. It can be many people are into meditation now, which opens you. And uh, many people, there are so many health centers that have opened up in the past ten years, holistic centers, which will enhance this and show you how to uh, become intuitive. But we're all born that way. But for me, I've I've just always been able to see that little something next to me or next to someone else or feel something, and, and we all have that gift. You say that you you mentioned that that you had noticed this as a child. How young were you when you? I was around this? seven years old the first time. Uh-huh. And my story, it's called the Black Man, and that's in my second book, and that's where it came about, where I was seeing this uh, this figure, and uh, we were just a bunch of kids hanging. You know, we had our own little crew growing up, but this is uh, that's one of the stories. But that's when I first noticed it. And I've I've felt something on my shoulder. I have seen things. I've taken pictures. I've smelled. 
uh, I have, uh, it's called Claire, Claire, there's Claire Audience, Claire Gustance, there's all the Claire's, Clairvoyance, and uh, like I said, many people have them, and I've just, I've just accepted it very easily, so of course you become more open. I'm also a Reiki master and an aura photographer, so I have been involved in this for many years now. How long did it take you to write uh, Spirit of Things 2, this book? Uh, it took me, from start to finish, probably about four months. The stories are not that long, but they're all true. That's one thing about my stories, they're all true. And um, and then with the picture at the end, the uh, it's just my little book. <laughs> yes, are, are all the stories your personal stories, or are they stories of other people as well? There's other people's also. I have... Um, People that have emailed me from all over the United States with pictures and their stories, and uh, I put that in the book, and it, it, it's 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 an amazing little book for a little book. What what do you think is the most interesting story that the reader is going to find fascinating when they delve into the, little, the spirit of the, things? It's too? called the little one. The little it's one. It's about a little girl that appeared to her mother after she after she uh, crossed over, and it really helped the mom and. That is that's that's one of the best stories in there. I th I think that's one of them that was very close to my heart. And so in in writing this, did you have a an ulterior motive other than getting your information out there? I mean, is there is there an underlying message you want to get? Be aware that there are that we all have spirit guides. I mean, it doesn't have to be a loved one that was crossed over, and it doesn't have to be anything any kind of religious uh, being. But we do have spirit guides uh, and. We are guided, just like with angels. We are guided, and more people are opening to it now. They are more aware of it. They are dreaming of their spirit guide. They are getting messages in their dreams. They are, they are feeling their spirit guide. They are seeing signs also during the day, you know, and they're just more aware, and a lot of people, it's helping a lot more people now. One of your chapters is called Cross of Moss. What does yes. that particular chapter deal with? That one, it's out back on my property. I was walking. This was about ooh, maybe like ooh, two years ago. And uh, there's this stone, and it's covered with moss, but right in the middle is, is a perfect picture of a cross. The moss does not grow. It's been like that for years. And that is the same day that when I was walking back and the, and the Blessed Mother appeared to me. Um, the more, the more, it's still there year after year. The moss does not grow. It just keeps that perfect cross picture of stone, and it's all cross or, uh, moss around it. And that's in the book, too. I have a picture of that in the book. Very interesting. And it's still there. Yes. Very, it, it's an interesting photo. I just looked at it, mm. and it, uh, it is an obvious uh, definition of a cross. Some of your other photos yes. are not quite as clear, clear at least right. in, the, in the photos right. I've got. A little, little more uh, obscure for my, for my uh, observation. But mm -hmm. they, there are some unusual objects in your pictures, in your photos. Uh, right. When you begin to write this, who did you want to reach with uh, this message? Just everybody? Or was this something that you had a specific individual in mind? No, I just wanted people to be aware that there are spirits out there and that the I mean now in our in our in our age of media with all the ghost hunting programs on and and and, and spiritual radio um, there is evidence of spirits and or, or some people call them ghosts and they can call them ghosts 
but there is another level above us, and, and that veil, we have a, it's a fine veil, and it's thinning. More and more people are connecting to the other side and, and contacting uh, their loved ones and other people on the other side, and it's just becoming more and more apparent. Carol, have you always wanted to be a writer as a young child? Did you have the desire to be an author? Yes, I have things that I have written since I was eight or nine years old, journals and all my dreams, because I, I journal all my dreams. I think it's important for everyone because there are messages in our dreams. And I have some that I have still from when I was eight, nine, ten years old. And I've always loved writing, so this is just something that, and I am planning a third project, but it's not going to be anything um, like the spirit of things. It's going to be something else. You planning to possibly go into the fictional side of uh, of storytelling in your next event? Uh, I have two ideas, yes, hmm. and I I already have a title for it, and then there's another another aspect of it also. Um, I have a little mentor. She goes to the Rhode Island School of Design, and she's an amazing artist. So she said she would do the artwork for the for the book, and this is something that. You know, I probably will be working on this summer. What 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 genre of storyline or storytelling do you like? Is it mystery? Is it uh, is it always involved the spiritual aspects of life, or are there other areas that interest you? The spiritual aspects of life and and mysteries, the mystery mysteries. of it. Mm. There, I think it coincides. You know, goes back and forth. Um, I. It, it, it is it is something I've always had an interest in. It's always been there, and I've always seen spirits. So this is I just think it's one of my purposes. What is your long term goal as an author? Oh well, I don't. I have never thought about getting famous. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, it was just very very uh, great to have my book published, and Exebus was wonderful. And um, as an author, is just to reach people, and I've had many people that have come to me about the book, and um, and so that it so it did have some kind of effect. Well, becoming an author, whether it's your first, second, or third book, is usually uh, fraught with challenges. Were there challenges in getting this particular oh, book, yes. The Spirit of Things, too, uh, completed? Oh, yes. Yes. What were those? Uh, it it was match. Well, a lot of it was matching the pictures. Um, with the stories and that, and, and and choosing the stories. I mean, I still have a folder full of stories that I did not use yet. Um, it's like I said, and the, and some of the pictures are somewhat obscure in this book. But uh, this is my ne my next project. I'll, I'll make sure the pictures are a little better. Or upgrade your camera. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know which camera well, you used. Well, no, Mike, yeah, I know. It's hard, <laughs> too. You know, the pictures were in black and white, so it is hard. But um, it's it's the front cover says it all. Cause that's, yes. Uh, and it's really that was really one of the best pictures because it is in color. It's on the front cover. And my first book, there's a cover, uh, picture of a horse spirit on the first book and uh, I was take I was able to take different pictures there of animal spirits because animals have spirits also they do have auras they do have anything that has energy has a spirit fascinating okay fascinating. trees have spirits uh, mm -hmm. animals people but we all have this energy which is our aura 
And, and a tree, you mentioned trees. I, there are some people that believe trees are like humans. I, that's not what you're saying. Oh, yes, you're ju- I do, do too. You, you, you do as well. I do as well. The one on the front cover of the book, her name is Senta, and huh. she's a spirit tree. And um, fairies have been seen around her. But they are living, living things, and all living things have energy, which we are all, and nothing but energy. And they have energy, and it reaches out, and that's why, you know... It's not too funny to see someone hugging a tree. Hmm. Native Americans, uh, like the birch, the white birch, is known because we get aspirin from it. A pine tree, true. Uh, pine trees are wonderful to to, to console you. Um, they have their own energy. Each tree has their own energy. It's part of Mother Nature. Fascinating idea. I hadn't thought of it that way. I live in uh, yeah. eight acres of pine trees, and sometimes I uh, I get angry with my pine trees because they spit on me all the time. Really? But, well, I, uh, they they drop needles and make They're me work hard. They're probably trying to tell you something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't 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 plant a pine tree close to your house. Well, uh, you know, I I've enjoyed the visit. the The title of the book again is "The Spirit of Things Two." And that's uh, two as in Roman numeral two. Here we go again, and our author, Carol Mann, has joined me from Massachusetts. Carol, where can those who want to get a copy of this, where can they get their own personal uh, edition of The Spirit of Things? It is for sale on Amazon, and exebris.com has it to sale. The website is also www.carolmann.com, where you can look at the book. But Amazon also, it's been doing very well on Amazon. Um, Around here in some of the local stores, it is been placed and selling. In fact, I have to bring some more to one other, one other holistic center because it's sold. And uh, it's very easily, like I said, between Amazon and Exebris and major book sites. It's carried on all major book sites. Sure, and they can request it from their local bookseller if they don't have a copy on hand. Again, yes. the, the title yes. again. And it also won, um, I entered into the, um, the National Dragonfly Book Awards and it won second place. Congratulations. And I, yes, and it's in the Indie Book Awards right now. I'm just waiting to hear because we had to just get that in soon. So that's it won second place in the uh, National Dragonfly Book Awards. So. Congratulations. The title of the book, again, is The Spirit of Things, 2, Roman numeral 2. Here we go again. The spelling of Carol's name is C-A-R-O-L-E, if you're doing a search yes. online, and man is M-A-N-N. You can find her book, not only this, but the other books she has already published and those that may be coming in the future. Thank you, Carol, for joining oh, me today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It was, it was a pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Get ready to live la bella vita with Dawn Catherine on Toginet.com. Live La Bella Vita. If you're wanting to know all the beauty tricks of the trade and the latest fashion trends before everyone else, this is your show. If you admire celebrities' beauty and their fashion sense, this is your show. Do you love wine and want to know more about the process it takes to make wine from the vine to the bottle? This is your show. Live La Bella Vita. For more on the show and your host, check out our website, labellavitacosmetico.com. This is the kind of show you can sink your teeth into. If you enjoy traveling and food and family, all with an Italian flair, then you can live La Bella Vita with your host, Dawn Catherine. Wednesday nights at midnight, 11 p.m. Central, on toginet.com.
Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is J. Douglas Barker, author Vincent L. Insera, from Chicago area, has written a book titled C1 and the Chicago Mob. He joins me by phone today. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. You are of Italian uh, ancestry. Uh, the mob has been often associated with Italian connections. Tell a little bit of the background of the C1 group and the group, the Chicago Mob. Well, yes, it all started uh, on November 14, 1957, Jay, and that was a date that uh, dramatically changed my career in the FBI, and it followed uh, the historic raid of Sergeant Crosswell and the men of the New York State Police at the mansion of Joe Barber in Appalachian, New York. Hmm. They arrested uh, 63 individuals, and most of them were prominent uh, hoodlums. And the one thing they all had in common was they were all of Italian descent. And, of course, at that time, law enforcement had many questions and uh, about this sinister meeting, and uh, law enforcement just didn't have many of the answers, even... The, uh, the FBI, the greatest law enforcement agency in the country, did not know uh, about uh, uh, this uh, uh, criminal organization, national criminal organization. And I was uh, uh, in the FBI at the time working general criminal cases, and uh, Hoover uh, promptly instituted the Top Hoodlum Program hmm. with instructions to all field officers to open case on these individuals and to find out whether or not they're in violation of any of the laws within jurisdiction of the FBI. And, of course, uh, we were told to open uh, uh, cases on our 10 most important hoodlums in the Chicago area and assign 10 agents exclusively to the top hoodlum program. Well, I was working uh, basically uh, uh, cases in involving bank robberies and uh, extortion cases, kidnapping cases. And I was very happy with the work assigned to me. And then my supervisor came up to me and said that he was going to assign me exclusively to the Top Hoodlum Program. Wow. And I, and I was very disappointed with that. And I asked him why. He said, because I was Italian. And that made absolutely no sense to me. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and, and, and I said, well, why, why Italian? He said, because you can pronounce the names. And that was, uh, <laughs> uh, that was, you know, that was your qualification. Sense, but I was uh, willing to go along with it, and uh, little did I realize at that time that for the next 19 years, I would be assigned to wage war against one of the most powerfully entrenched organizations in, 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 in the country, uh, uh, following uh, the uh, Al Capone group, now, and that I would be in charge of the C1 squad. C1 C1 stands for Criminal Squad, correct? Criminal Squad number criminal one. Criminal Squad number one. C1 it, Criminal Squad. That was the FBI's organized crime squad, and uh, I was in charge of that squad for the last 13 years of my FBI assignment. So that's how it all began. Uh, you began in 1951, if I remember correctly, as a, uh, started with the FBI. After after leaving military, you were a lieutenant in World War II, a uh, pilot, 
and uh, joined the FBI early in the 50s. That is a, uh, a long time ago. You have uh, great detail. In, well, I'm, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's, it, you have a lot of detail in your book. You have uh, nearly 317 pages. You talk about uh, many of the crime bosses, the crime activities in the Chicago area. How did you retain those details? Uh, well, uh, 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 having been involved for 19 years, I lived it, and mm. I, I, I knew all about it. And if anyone ever told me, that I would be writing a book at this stage in my life, I would have told them that they were delusional. But I, I managed to get through it. Uh, it. It was after my second career. Uh, I, I was 25 years in the FBI, 27 as corporate security director for Kemper Insurance in Long Grove. Mm -hmm. So after that, I felt I had a little time to sit down and put this thing together. It took me a year to write the book and about eight months to publish it. I was a first-time self-publishing author, and it was no easy task. I have more respect and appreciation for authors after having gone through this experience. Vince, you have mentioned one of the well-known or highly publicized names in crime history, Giancano. Tell a little of his, uh, his, his involvement in the Chicago area and uh, how that impacted your career. Well, yes. Well, see, uh, when, when, when we had this uh, a sinister meeting in Appalachian and they rounded up 63 individuals, we didn't know then, but we know now, that Sam Giancana was in attendance and he was mm -hmm. the undisputed leader of organized crime. So naturally, uh, we concentrated uh, on the hierarchy and, 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 and Sam being the leader, we, uh, we felt that that uh, we would uh, pay particular attention to Sam G. in Canada. He was the boss, and he was in charge for a period of, of almost 10 years, and we zeroed in on him. Among the high-profile stories you highlight in your book, the attempts of Robert Kennedy to eliminate the mob activities, not only in Chicago, but across the United States. He visited Chicago on several occasions. Share a little of the story of Robert Kennedy coming to Chicago and your interaction with him. Well, Bob Kennedy... Uh, Bobby Kennedy, you know, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, was more commonly referred to as Bobby. And uh, when he uh, became Attorney General of the United States in 1961, I liked Bobby very, very much, and we became good friends. And whenever he came to Chicago on business or to make a speech, he would call ahead, and we would pick him up and give him safe escorts while he was in Chicago. So Bobby Kennedy was responsible for helping us obtain the manpower necessary to wage the war we did against organized crime. So between J. Edgar Hoover, our former director, you, you, you may see their partial photographs on the cover Correct. of my book. And these two individuals were primarily responsible for, for the support we had in our war against organized crime. And, and Bobby, Bobby was a, uh, a true foe of organized crime, and he did everything possible to help us out in our efforts. What's the story behind James the Bomber, Katura? Well, uh, Jimmy the Bomber, Katura, was uh, one of the uh, uh, principal uh, uh, members of organized crime who operated on the far south side of Chicago, and he operated a, a, uh, a, 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 a stolen car ring 
and they would chop up cars and sell parts and whatnot. And then I think there was a little dispute among some of the members of organized crime, and they tried to force their way into his organization, and he resisted, and they just uh, uh, took him out one one mm. night and uh, got rid of him and took over his operation. So that uh, took care of Jimmy. Look, took care of Jimmy, yes. Uh, Vince, when you began to write this and uh, were recounting these stories, were there any challenges in bringing up the details, or did you have those at your fingertips? I, I, I basically knew what I wanted to talk about. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, I, I, I relied heavily on uh, on uh, the Chicago Crime Commission, who we cooperated with over the years, and other public source information uh, that, that helped me recall these instances. And then, with my own knowledge, I was able to put these cases together. Who would you describe as your uh, primary reader? Who is going to find this a fascinating tale of uh, crime, intrigue, and victory over some of that in the Chicago area? Yes. Well, I, I feel that uh, it's a very fascinating part of Chicago history, and, 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 and the Chicago FBI was part of that. And uh, this book, C-1 and the Chicago Mob, is the FBI's war, is the story behind the FBI's war against the Chicago Mob. So any history buff or anyone who would like to know about the background in Chicago, organized crime, and what the FBI did. Uh, and, and I think there's 19 years of it, and that was during the heyday of organized crime in Chicago following the Al Capone era. One thing that's fascinating about your book is not only the detail that's included, but you have uh, multiple photos of the main characters that you have described. Yes, the, uh, there are about 50 or 60 photographs. And they've come from uh, various sources uh, that I've accumulated over the years, just so we uh, know who the players are. And uh, I was able to put these together and, and tell my story. And I feel that uh, uh, graphically it, uh, it, it helps uh, uh, people follow the uh, contents of the book. One photo that you have in here of one of the characters, and uh, obviously a mobster, Vincent the Saint. In Sarah, why the saint? Uh, well, he was from St. Louis, and ah. he was about five feet tall, about 130 pounds, and he was a cold-blooded killer. Mm. And he had uh, a name very similar to mine. So consequently, uh, even law enforcement was, was inquiring in my neighborhood about Vincent the Saint and Sarah, thinking that I was one and the same. I had to call Sheriff Ogilvy, who later became governor of the state of Illinois, and tell him to call off the men that this is me. I'm the good guy. You're the good guy. But in any event, <laughs> uh, I had received many calls uh, asking for him, and I've had many visitors at the house looking for Vincent. Right? Uh -oh. So he was sort of a thorn in my side. And uh, as you know, we eventually found a violation, a federal violation, against him. It wasn't the most significant one, but it was tax evasion, and he went away for a few years. So this took him out of the picture. And for my, well, lis my listeners, his name ended in an O and yours in an A. That uh, accounted for the misunderstanding that happened often. Yes, it did. But, of course, my father uh, uh, also used the name of Encero. He was a hairdresser, and he opened the first uh, 
hairdressing salon in Filene's department store in Boston. And I guess he wow. just felt that it sounded better. So he did use that name. But the name truly is Insera. That's an amazing coincidence also. Now, to describe this book and get someone interested in getting a copy of it, how would you, how would you recap the story that's included? Well, I think it's a very interesting and uh, uh, fascinating story on organized crime cases investigated by the agents of the C-1 squad during that 19-year period. And I feel that organized crime will never be the same in Chicago thanks to the incredible accomplishments of the C-1 agents to whom we owe a huge debt of gratitude. And if anyone is interested in buying uh, the book, uh, it's available through Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and through various local public libraries. So that just about sums it up, Jay. You've had an illustrious career, and, uh, and now one as an author. Is there another book in the future that you hope to share with the public? I, I don't think so, Jay. You know, at this stage in my life, I'm 92 years old. Oh, my. Don't sound and, it. Uh, I've been doing book uh, signing <laughs> presentations, and I've been talking before various groups, and it's, 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 uh, it's a full-time job, and I don't know how much longer I can keep at it. But I've had a full career, and I think one book is enough. I've, 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 uh, my, my life now is, is an open book, so to speak, and I, I just wanted to get it out there because it was a tribute. Primarily, I wrote it as a tribute to the agents on the C-1 squad who did all the work for it. Vince, among those early team members, anyone that really stood out in your mind and you have high regard for? Absolutely. Uh, number one is, is Harold Sell, S-E-L-L. And Harold is in Alito, Texas. He was my predecessor. I took mm. over from him. A wonderful agent. And he got us started. And then there was James Abbott, who is in Houston. Uh, no, pardon me, in Dallas. And then uh, Bobby Gillum in Houston. And uh, uh, Charlie Brown in Tyler, Texas. Charlie died about 25 years ago in a fiery automobile accident. Mm. But those four agents uh, contributed immensely to the, to the accomplishments of the C-1 squad, and I think it's worthy of mention since you do uh, uh, do address a, uh, a, a Texas uh, group. Yes. Phenomenal, Vince. Thank you for, for sharing that information as well. A fascinating book, fascinating study, fascinating history, and um, I might say, sir, you don't sound a day over seventy or seventy-one, if at the at the most. So you you do a wonderful job of uh, of, of sharing your story, and thank you again for joining me today. Well, thank you very much, Jay. I enjoyed it immensely. My pleasure. The title of the book again is C One or C One and the Chicago Mob. My author, Vincent L. Insera, with an A. Thank you, Vince, for joining me today, sir. Thank you, Jay. Enjoy it. My pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. 
She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 success stories from successful entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is J. Douglas Barker. An interesting book titled Farragut and His Family, The Making of an Elder Hero. Our author, Robert L. Kellio, joins me to discuss his book. Thank you, sir, for being a part of the program. Well, I'm glad to be here, Jay. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about how I came to write this book. Yes, love to hear it. Okay. In fact, it's a, uh, I say the story of how the book came to be really spans about half of my lifetime, which now I am 84 years old. So I am not only writing about an elder hero, but I'm an elder author. Mm. <laughs> uh, what happened to me was uh, in, uh, in 1968, I was working for uh, the International Nickel Company in New York. And I wrote for the company external magazine an article on the blockade runners of the Civil War. And the reason I did that for that magazine is we had a company location with, uh, uh, where the blockade runners were entering during the war, and that was Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So to make a longer story, uh, long story short, um, I wrote that piece, but the piece somehow found its way over to England because this was an international company. And about a year later, I got a letter from a publishing company in London saying, would you write an article on Admiral Farragut's role in the Civil War? And they were doing something that was kind of interesting. They were uh, publishing a monthly publication called History of the English-Speaking Peoples. And what that was was they were serializing Winston Churchill's uh, four-volume work that he wrote yes. before yeah. World War II. And each each uh, issue would deal with part of that. And they would supplement that part with other articles on that particular time in history. So when they got up to the Civil War, he was handling the American Civil War. When they got up to that, they wanted to get articles on details about people in the Civil War. So they asked me. Now, the reason they asked me, I think they saw that one article. and I was not, I really knew nothing about Farragut, but I said, this is a great chance. And I just went into it and I did a lot of research on him. And uh, I was captivated by more than just writing that article. His life to me is like a drama. Uh, it almost could be on a stage play. It could be fiction. So, so for 20 years after that, I've been doing research, writing uh, some magazine articles on uh, different aspects of his life. Finally, when I retired, uh, a while ago, I decided I had so much information on him that I would turn it into a book. I never thought about that, and that's what I've done. You have uh, something that's unusual about your book, because Farragut was uh, of the uh, uh, 1800s, correct? That was mostly when he was uh, yeah. living and, he was, and active. He was born in 1801. 1801. In the Civil War, he, he became a hero during the 1860s, right? I'm seeing a picture, a photograph in your book. Is that actually... 
Mr. Farragut? On the cover of the book? Uh, in, on the cover and inside, I'm seeing a black yes, and white. That, that is him. That's, that's a Civil War uh, period uh, photograph. That means he was then about 61 years old. Incredible, because the clarity of the photo is, is astounding by itself. When yes. you discovered Admiral Farragut, what was the thing that was intriguing about him that got your attention to begin with? Well, I think that he actually uh, he entered the Navy at age nine. Amazing. And, was, and he was, it was amazing, I have to tell you a little bit of how he got into the Navy, but uh, what intrigued me, he entered the Navy at age nine. At age 12, he was fighting uh, on a uh, frigate in the Pacific Ocean against uh, British warships uh, during the War of 1812. So he was a midshipman in the Navy at age nine and went into the, directly into the War of 1812. His commander of the ship was, be, had become his foster father before that. Fascinating. So maybe I should back, just backtrack a little. Um, what happened here is he was born in uh, Tennessee to a Spanish immigrant who had come over to the United States. It wasn't the United States, then, but America. Uh, in 1776, and uh, fought with the colonists in the Revolution. And uh, after the Revolution, settled in Tennessee, uh, married a woman he met along the way, and then they had uh, several children, one of whom was uh, the future admiral. And uh, But it wasn't long that he stayed with that family. At se- about uh, age seven or eight, the family had trans- been uh, transferred to New Orleans. His father was, at that point, in the in the United States Navy. He had fought in the, uh, on land in the Revolutionary War, and he became a sailor because he originally had been a seaman in Europe. Uh, so he was transferred to New Orleans, and they were there to try to protect uh, the coastline against the British, uh, who, was, who were trying to... Uh, Invade the United States or, or interrupt its commerce, and, and that's that's what started the War of 1812. But uh, when soon after they got to New Orleans, the, the entire family, uh, his mother died of yellow fever, which was kind of rampant in New Orleans in those days. So the father was left with uh, six children, and one day uh, he came along uh, with uh, home with his the commanding officer. And uh, all the children were there, and the commanding officer had offered to take one of the children to leave his burden. Mm-hmm. So when they when they appeared, uh, they presented that to the children, some of whom were uh, girls, and some of, and two were boys, uh, three were boys. One was very small, and uh, the fellow who became the admiral, uh, David, who became David Glasgow Farragut, said, "I'll go." He was about seven years old, eight years old. And he explained later why he said that. He said because he fell in love with the commanding officer's uniform. Wow. And also his brother, who was like a year or two older than him, had already been uh, entered the Navy as a midshipman. See, they entered the Navy very early in in those days. They had uh, sponsors and so forth. So uh, that's how the future admiral ended up fighting in the Pacific Ocean on a frigate, and the commanding officer was the, the one who had taken him from his father, who was a, then a captain in the Navy. His name was uh, David Porter. David Porter was really one of the heroes uh, in the War of 1812 in the end. You know, and uh, 
Now, was his was his father uh, from Menorca, the Balearic Islands? His natural father was from Menorca in the, in the Balearic Islands, right? Yes, and for my listeners, uh, give them a little of the geographical location so they can visualize in their mind where that would uh, would actually oh, be. Those islands, uh, probably many people have heard of Menorca, which yes. is the biggest mm-hmm. in the Balearic Islands. Menorca is a smaller one, and they are off uh, the closest big place in Spain, I would say. But it's right off the bed. It's off the southern coast of Spain, in the Mediterranean. Yes, correct, correct. And uh, so he had a so, he had a, an attachment or an ancestral heritage that had Spanish influence in it. The challenges that he had in life, the crises that he encountered, which of those do you feel was the most life changing for Admiral Farragut? Well. Uh, one of the first uh, ones he had was in this uh, battle he was fighting when he was uh, uh, at age 12. And that was the only uh, uh, combat he had he ever saw until the Civil War, 50 years mm. later. So his first battle was very severe because during that time, this frigate that he was on uh, was surrounded by two British warships. They caught the... the they were chasing uh, this frigate because what happened is Captain Porter, who was the commander of the, and the Farragut's force of father, had been uh, sailing around the Pacific and uh, capturing, seizing British whalers and the oil that they were. They, they, he was after commercial ships and not fighting warships in the Pacific Coast. There weren't too many warships in the Pacific during the World War II. But after he seized enough British whalers and... Uh, Took over, took the the oil, which was worth millions of dollars. You know, um, the British sent out a couple of ships to chase him, and they caught him in the harbor of Valparaiso, Chile. Uh, and what happened is, uh, Captain Porter, who was kind of a daring person, and I guess he was a great mold, a role model for Admiral Farragut, the future admiral. Um, he decided he would like to fight the two ships, but he knew he couldn't fight them together. So he would try to angle his ship towards one of them. But every time he did that, the other one would come in, the, in the view and they, they would be surrounded. Finally, he decided he would try to get out of the harbor. And uh, he did not think they would attack him because there was sort of a, a rule of the sea that uh, during wartime, you're not supposed to uh, ever attack an enemy in a neutral port. This was a neutral port in Chile, right? Yes. But the British were, uh, were determined to get him. So as he tried to escape the uh, harbor, what happened is a, a stiff wind came along and ripped some of his sails. And it sort of uh, disabled the ship a little bit. He tried to get away by going into a cove uh, where he thought he could repair his ship. But they surrounded him. And so to get to your uh, question about the, what was a crisis in Farragut's life, sure. for the first time in his life as a boy of 12, he saw people shot into ribbons. Uh, they were surrounded. Hmm. And he says in the book, uh, his job during the battle was to be the captain's assistant and to yell out the captain's orders over the uh, noise of the cannons or to deliver messages to the gunners or whatever captain needed to keep the ship uh, going. Uh, but he said, as I stood near the captain, one shell came through a uh, 
a gun opening on the ship actually killed four people at one time and scattered the brains of one person over the, him and his captain. Ouch. So I think that's a, that was a bit of a crisis, but I, I think uh, he says then at that, he said he, that, that just made war real to him, and he just forgot what was going on and did his duty. Uh, Life-changing uh, moment, for sure. Yeah, so you... I think, uh, now we don't know, he, he never had uh, faced combat until 50 years later in the Civil War. He was in the Navy all that time, but he was always on peace. It was always, it was always peace time years. And he was always on cruises where there was no combat, really. But when the time came with Civil War, I guess that probably helped him more than anything else because he had already seen, you know, something as bad as you can see during war, I guess, you know. You've assigned the, the term hero to Admiral Farragut. Why right. that particular term? What is oh, okay. it about him? He became a, a national hero, and I guess uh, I, I give you this, uh, his portfolio in the Civil War. He uh, became known as someone who could make quick decisions in crises uh, when either his ship was in trouble or you know his objective was not being met. He would be able to turn things around. I just got it was uh, the thing he's most famous for was his last battle, the invasion of Mobile Bay, and uh, that's. But he's had uh, he's had other battles before that. But I I'll go to the, the the one that people talk about most mostly, and they think of the phrase "damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead." Uh, yes, that that's what he's known for. Well, what happened in the invasion of Mobile Bay? He he was he he had to go past to get into Mobile Bay with his fleet of about uh, maybe 16, 17 ships. He had to go past heavily armed forts guarding that harbor in Mobile. Uh, and that was one of the last entrances for uh, the Confederates trading for weapons with uh, Britain in, in exchange for cotton and so forth. So they wanted to close that harbor. And so as he, his, what he did is he lined his ships up and he ordered them. He was very, uh, very detailed person. He had them uh, ranged in a line before they entered. He had each main uh, large ship, which were steam going but also sail ships together, uh, lashed to smaller gunboats. And they were actually lashed by chains. And the reason he said that, is he, always, he did that in other battles, is because in, this, in these river fights, well, this was not a river fight, it was off the Gulf of Mexico, but he had other river fights earlier. Sometimes ships would get grounded, and the gunboats would be able to pull them off if they did. You know? mm. So he always lashed them to a smaller gunboat. Anyway, as the parade of ships entered Mobile Bay, and they were firing on these forts, and the forts were a little higher level firing down on them, the Confederates had uh, made it even harder for them. The Confederates had blocked the harbor with logs, uh, so that the ships could not could only go through a, a little channel which is right underneath the main fort. So mm. they were really uh, targets as they passed the main fort. And uh, they also had blocked the harbor with what they called torpedoes. And these are impact devices such as the things we're seeing now on the ground in Iran and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. You hit them and they explode, you know. So if a ship, it was like a, like a mine, you know. Mm-hmm. If a ship hit them, it explodes. Well, as they did, uh, he was convinced that uh, he should be second. His ship, his flagship called the Hartford, this time was always the first ship in any 
battle he uh, entered, but they convinced him that he should be second this time. And he didn't want to do that, but they said, send one ahead of you, and uh, you can direct us from, from behind a little. So he sent the uh, one ship ahead. He was second in line. As they paraded through, the first ship hit a mine and exploded. Hmm. And then it didn't actually break up, but the captain of that ship stopped the engine and put them in reverse. Meanwhile, he's pushing the whole line of ships back and making them easy targets because they couldn't move. You know? So at that point, Farragut made his famous order. He did not actually say damn the torpedo, but he, he looked at what was happening. And also, at the same time, he saw an, one of his ironclad ships, which these ironclads were the ones that they relied on to fight. You know, they were, they were sort of looked like a, above the surface submarines. You've seen those. Right, uh, yes. Right. And the, the one that he was relying on heavily when he got into the harbor did hit a mine too and exploded and sunk. So he, it was really bad. It was a critical moment because if they had not moved ahead or done anything, they would have been destroyed by the, the fort, you know, and so forth. So what he did is he just went around the, the ship that was trying to go in reverse, and he just rallied the whole line, and he said, full speed ahead. They all went ahead. They went through the mines, through the logs, and they made it into the harbor. And that was a critical moment because someone could have uh, fallen apart at that moment and thought that all was lost, and it could have been lost in so he was known for quick decisions, and that was what he was really known for. And other uh, things I can talk about, he made quick decisions to save lives, save himself, and, uh, and, and be victorious or not lose a battle anyway. Well, he's a fascinating yeah. character, and you have done a wonderful job of researching not only uh, Admiral Admiral Farragut, but also his family, and given some wonderful detail about their lives, including pictures and photos and, and other parts of your essay. This is an interesting book, 153 pages. The title again is Farragut and Family, The Making of an Elder Hero. Our guest, Robert L. Callio. Sir, where can we get copies of your book? Well, I believe now it's, uh, we can get copies by writing to, uh, actually, it's on the Amazon, it's on bondsandnoble.com. Wonderful. Uh, and I think there's an ebook also probably in Barnes and Noble. It's just out now and, uh, uh yeah, the publisher is handling all that, but definitely can write to, uh, actually with, we'll go through them. And a lot of people have got buying the books on, online, I think. Yeah. Very good. They can do a search under your name, Robert L. Calio, C-A-L-E-O is the correct, correct spelling of it. And they'll be able to find about this book and others that perhaps you will write in the future. Thank you for joining me today, sir. Well, thank you. My pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.